those days. But uh, I'm, it's, all, <laughs> it's always one of those days. Well, this morning, um, I would like to begin a new series of messages um, <clears throat> entitled Suffering, a Theology of Hope. Uh, and I mentioned this last week or the week before, maybe a couple of weeks that we were going to be doing this series. Um, and if there's one thing, there's one thing that it seems like every person who has ever attended this church has in common, it's the experience of suffering. And if there's one thing that it seems like every person in this world wants and needs today, it's hope. So many people over the past year and a half especially are struggling with depression and anxiety. For all of our learning and technology, we find that our world is ill-equipped to deal with a microscopic respiratory virus. That might be discouraging to you, I don't know. Even our most well-informed medical and public health experts cannot agree on things like treatment protocols and prevention protocols. And no one knows when or how this public health crisis will end. I mean, for 18 months, we have been told, if everyone would just do this for a few weeks, and yet the virus continues to spread. And fear and uncertainty go right along with it. Once trusted institutions have lost their credibility with large portions of the public. And so no one really knows whom to trust or where to turn for reliable information. And there are a lot of other things that cause us to suffer aside from the novel coronavirus from 2019. Just in the past year, some of you have lost loved ones. Others have experienced painful injuries or illnesses that have weakened your body, that have left you in constant pain and discomfort. Some of you have been mistreated and misunderstood, and you've suffered the pain of broken relationships. A couple of you have borne children. I don't think she's in here now, but... Experience the pain that comes along with that process. The fact of the matter is, and I mentioned this during Sunday school, but we could go around the room right now and give everyone a chance to share with us the pain that they've endured and are enduring right now, and we'd be here all day. Some of you could, could occupy the rest of the day with your list of ailments. Uh, I don't say that to make light of it, that's just a reality. Pain is real. And pain is really virtually a universal human experience. And it's not very helpful if we just say, you know, get over it. Move on. Keep a stiff upper lip. It'll get better someday. We want to know that our pain is meaningful. That our suffering is not pointless. What we really want is to understand suffering. And so if you stop to think for a second about what we as a society do with suffering, we, we want to understand it. And so we spend billions of dollars on products that are intended to relieve our pain and alleviate our suffering. And we spend billions more trying to find answers to our questions about suffering. Books, therapists, support groups, not to mention alcohol, drugs, and a whole host of other quote-unquote, coping mechanisms. They all offer this tantalizing dream of purposeful pain. If I just could understand it, if I read this book by this guy, then he's going to help me to understand my, my, my pain, and then it won't be meaningless anymore, and I'll be able to endure it. Or if I just follow this, this particular protocol, I will be free from pain or discomfort. 
But those dreams never pan out in the end. Even if they provide some temporary relief, in the end, nothing works on that score. And so if we want to better understand suffering, I contend, the questions of why we suffer, what is it for, and where to find hope, we're going to have to come to the Bible. And we're going to have to hear what God has to say about these things in his word. And so when we come to Scripture, what we'll find is there are principles in Scripture as well as examples that will help us to understand suffering and give us a reason for hope. And so what I want to do today is very, very simple. Um, I want to look at two different uh, just two very, very basic things when it comes to this question of suffering and, and, and finding hope and understanding that. And what I want to do is I want to simply ask two basic questions. And the first is, how did it start? And the second question is, how will it end? just want to address those two questions very, very simple this morning. So I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Because if we're going to understand how suffering began, we've got to look at the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And there in Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We are introduced to God. And we discover right away that He is the creator of all things. Do you know God is the reason there's something rather than nothing? His will is the driving force behind all of existence, our existence and everything else's. God willed it to be so. God desired it to be this, and therefore it is. If it wasn't for that, we would not exist. Nothing in this universe would exist. God is the reason as we read through the opening chapter of Genesis, one thing we find is we, we read the description of how God created all of the things in the world. And what's amazing when you read that is we find that God created everything using only words. Look at verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke. The, the power of God's voice is so great that when he speaks, I want you to think about this for a second. This, this blows my mind every time I think about it. When God speaks, things which do not yet exist respond and obey his call. Think about that for a second. That'll blow your mind. When God speaks, Things that do not yet exist respond to his voice and answer his call. He called for light. And again, I don't know what your, I don't know how much you've you've read or studied uh, in this in the sciences, especially in the area of physics. Um, I've had the opportunity to do some study in that area, and, and I, I, I enjoy that. Um, and I've even had a chance to teach some of it. Um, light is a really astounding thing. Scientists do not understand light. Light absolutely boggles their minds. Uh, it doesn't follow the rules. <laughs> I mean, it does until it doesn't. And then they have to make a new set of rules. Um, uh, light is just an amazing thing. God called for light, and this thing which we call light but we don't understand came into existence. Don't ask me to explain how that happened, because I can't. No one can. All we have is God's word, and He tells us that is what happened. God spoke. Let there be light. Prior to that point, there was no such thing as light. It did not yet exist. And God spoke, 
and light came to be. He doesn't explain to us how his word and his power work. But when we read Genesis 1, what's very clear to us is that God's word is powerful. So powerful that things that are not yet in existence must listen and obey his voice. Now, we can see this isn't just hap doesn't just happen with light. In fact, all through chapter 1, we see the same thing. In verse 6, then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, then God said. Verse 11, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26. At each point in the creation process, God simply spoke the thing that he wanted, and it came to be just as he said. Now, keep that in your mind for a second and look at verse 26. Or, I'm sorry, not 26. Uh, verse 28. Because in verse 28, God does something that is really astounding. He speaks. And his speech here is not a creative word in the sense he's not saying, let there be something. But... This is the same God, the same word. He speaks, and all of creation, even that which doesn't yet exist, still listens and responds. So think about that. Keep that in mind. And notice what God says. God blessed them. Talking about the, 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 the people, man and woman that he created. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed mankind. He told them to fill up the earth. He told them to subdue it, subdue it to take dominion over it. When God spoke those words, do you think that creation listened? It had listened up to that point to everything he'd said. It had been obedient to that point, and now he tells, he tells the, the man and the woman and all of creation that these two are going to be blessed, favored, and that they are going to uh, subdue and rule over and fill the whole earth. And all of the other realms of the creation are going to answer to and respond to man that God has created. This, and, and God declares it to be so. Powerful words from God. Now, it's no wonder then, in verse 31, at the end of the chapter, God gives his assessment of the creation. And, and you may be familiar. What does God say about the creation in verse 31? It's very good, he says. Right? He uses that, that, that term. It's the only place in this chapter where he uses that specific term. Otherwise, he called it good. But now he says it is very good when everything is all done. It was all very good. You see, in the beginning, there was no place for suffering, no place for evil, no place for anything not good in the whole universe that God had made. And, just let me add this, there was nothing outside of the universe that God made. Except for God himself. Chapter 2 and verse 1 makes that clear. Thus, the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. Okay, the heavens, that's everything out there. The earth, that's everything down here. And all of the host of them. So everything that fills them up. God created all of that with his voice. He assessed all of it and said, in every realm and everything I've created, of all of the things that, are, that exist, it is very good. That was God's assessment. It was God's view of it. Now, we continue on in chapter 2. And what we find as we look through chapter 2 and we trace through here is that this very good creation that God has made... Um, in that very good creation, that God creates a special place. And we're told there in chapter 2 and verse 8 that God creates a special place, a garden. It's in a place called Eden. And this garden is intended to be the perfect dwelling place for man. It has everything that he needs. 
I don't know if, if you've read through this description before, but think about uh, what exactly we need for life. And you'll see that everything that man needed for life is found here in the garden. Everything. Okay? He, he, he provides trees in verse 9, a variety, a whole host of trees. And these trees are important because they provide shelter and they provide food. Every kind of food he needs to live, all of it is here. A whole variety of abundant fruit uh, for him to eat is all here in the garden. Verse 10, we find that there's a river flowing out of the garden. There is a source of fresh water, a continuous supply of fresh water. He needs food, he needs water, he needs shelter. He's got all those things there in the garden. What else does he need? <laughs> well, he needs a helper. Right? The man cannot fulfill God's intention uh, without a helper, a compatible helper. And the language of chapter 2 is very, very clear that what man was looking for was someone similar to him but different. The same but different. Right? It needed to be a human creature. It couldn't be an animal because it needed to be compatible with him. But it needed to be different from him because he needed someone with whom he could create life, with whom he could procreate, with whom he could fill the earth and subdue it. And so man needed woman. And God created the woman there. And we read about that in verses 18 to 23. We see that God gives the man everything he needs to be able to live and thrive so he can fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, and exercise all that God intended for him to be. The Bible says man was made to be the image of God. He is going to represent God to all the rest of creation. <clears throat> and we find here in chapter 2 that God gives him everything he needs to do that. Fully, fully, uh, full provision is made here. Now, this chapter is not a second, uh, a second creation as some critics like to suggest, um, what it is simply, chapter 2 gives us a more thorough explanation of what happened on day 6 that's recorded for us in chapter 1. And so we have this explanation of God's creation that he made. This very good creation. And chapter 2 ends with a very curious statement that, that goes along with that very good assessment. In the last verse of chapter 2, it says, they, referring to the, 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 the people, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This may seem like a, a curious verse, a curious statement, but what it tells us is that here in this garden, in this place, this perfect place, the man and the woman that God created were able to live together in peace and harmony. There is no deception, no mistrust. There's no fear. There's no conflict. There's no barrier or hindrance to communication. The man and the woman living together, nothing between them, not even clothing. They're able to, to have this relationship that is completely open and at peace without fear, without any risk at all. Because it's a very good world that God has made. There's nothing evil. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's nothing to be feared in it. A very good world situated within a very good heavens and there, God made a very good family, and he placed them in a very good garden, and he set them on a very good mission to bear his image to the rest of creation. And that sounds really, really good, doesn't it? Almost sounds too good to be true. We might feel that way, because things today certainly aren't like that, are they? And so whatever we read about here, whatever we read described in these opening chapters of the Bible, we go, boy, that sounds great, but I don't recognize that very well. I don't see that in the world around me. I don't experience life like that. It's true. So what happened? How did pain and suffering enter in? Well, in chapter 3, Moses introduces us to another character here. We have God, we have the man and the woman. And then in chapter 3, we're introduced to a serpent. The serpent is a creature who enters the garden through subtlety, and he begins to question the goodness of of God. You're familiar probably with this, chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent says to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Begins to question 
God's words and God's motive. What is God really doing this for? Is God really good? Does he really have your best interest at heart? And he begins to question these things. You see, when God placed a man in the garden, he told him that there was one tree in the garden that was off limits. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the serpent approached the woman and began to speak to her about this limitation. And he characterized this as an injustice. He began to suggest to Eve, the woman, that God was being petty, selfish, unjust, withholding from them something that would be good for them, withholding from them something that they deserved, withholding from them something which he had no right to keep from them. And so this idea of injustice with God is being planted in her mind. The Bible tells us that she begins to listen and she begins to look and she considers for herself the things the serpent has said. In verse 6, we see the woman saw the tree was good for food. So it's, it's appetizing, had a pleasant fruit. She, she also sees that it was pleasant to the eyes. It, it was appealing to look at. You know, they say that you eat with your eyes first. Have you ever... Uh, maybe, you know, maybe you've, you've, you've seen something before that someone's made and it looks atrocious. It might taste good, but it looks awful. And it kind of can be hard sometimes to overcome that, to even try it if it doesn't look good. Right? Um, I had a friend years ago who was, grew up in Japan and he said that in Japan, his experience was that the Japanese cuisine was all about how it looked. And it didn't even have to taste very good. If it looked good, that was what they wanted. So they were always, it was always very creative in the, in the display of it, but it didn't always live up to the, to the look. Okay. Um, but in this case, it's both. It looks, it looks attractive, but it also, it, it's good food. So there's, there's, there's something here to draw her into it. So she's attracted by it. And then the, the third thing, it says it was uh, desirable to make one wise. And so she sees this tr tree and she sees this, she hears this, 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 this idea, the promise here that there's real wisdom to be gained. And she takes the fruit. And she eats it. And her husband was apparently standing right there with her. We read about him at the end of verse 6. And so there's, there, you know, there's no indication that she went anywhere. It seems like he must have been nearby. And she just hands him the fruit. And he, in willful rebellion, takes this fruit, disobeys God's command, and eats it. Now, immediately, this choice, this sin, bears a kind of fruit. Look at verse 7. What is the immediate consequence of eating the fruit? Then their eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Their eyes were opened, so they knew they were naked, isolated, vulnerable, and what did they do? Instinctively, they sought cover. Immediately, they realized they're vulnerable. Immediately, there is the presence of fear, of anxiety. And so they seek to, to cover themselves. Their solution was to sew fig leaves together, to make uh, some clothing to cover their nakedness. This is the beginning of fear. <clears throat> Eating this fruit did not elevate their consciousness. It didn't open their eyes to new godlike perception. No, they found themselves instead living with anxiety, living with shame and discomfort. This is the beginning of suffering. And it happened instantly, the moment they sinned. Now, very soon afterward, <clears throat> the Lord came to find them, and we read that they hid themselves. There in verse 8, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They acted out of fear. Uh, the Lord begins to speak to them and, and, and question them, and what is their response? Well, they begin to, to play the blame game. The man blamed his wife for his rebellion. It was her fault. She gave him the fruit. What else was he supposed to do? 
right? Because that's what men are supposed to do, is just follow their wives. And whatever their wife says, the man says, yes, dear, and he does it, right? Happy wife, happy life. Right? That's what Adam did. And now he says, God, the, God, I was just trying to get along with this woman. And she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And of course, what does Eve do? She says, well, it wasn't my fault, it was the serpent. He tricked me. The both of them play the blame, the blame game. And I thought this was interesting. First, they try to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. Now they're trying to cover their guilt with excuses. This idea that they're trying to cover themselves. But it's here that the experience of suffering really intensifies. In verse 16, the Lord, speaking to the woman, he tells her that her part of this great work, remember that the work of the man and the woman in the garden is to multiply. Their primary work is have children, raise them, spread over the earth and take control and exercise God's rule on this earth. That's their job, their primary job. And what does God say here to the woman? He says, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. The Lord says that in her part of this work, this, her part is bearing children. Primary part, bearing children. And he says it's going to become painful. It's going to be exhausting labor. And those of you ladies who have given birth can attest to that. It is hard work. It is difficult. It is painful. It is not easy. That is something that takes a great deal of effort to endure. This is going to be coupled with a dissatisfaction in her relationship with her husband. And domestic life is going to be difficult. And so these realms where the woman is primarily the, 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 the primary element of her role in God's good design is going to be made much more difficult. It's going to be made painful. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be a, a, a trial that is attached to it. And then he turns to the man, and he tells the man in verses 17 through 19 that he is also going to experience suffering and hardship in his part of the mission. You see, his part of the mission is involved, is going to involve cultivating and producing and creating and supplying uh, 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 the necessary things of life. And he's going to experience hardship. Whatever he tries to accomplish using the resources of the natural world is going to be frustratingly difficult. Only by the sweat of his brow and the toil of his hand is he going to be able to sustain and support life. And you realize that's what we have to do. It's hard work to live. We have to work hard to be able to produce enough food and shelter and clothing and resources so we can meet the needs, not just of ourselves, but of those who depend on us. And for, for the man, that's his responsibility. He's to care for and provide for the needs of his wife and then their children. And that's hard work. And God says it's going to be very difficult. And you're going to labor at it all the days of your life. And in the end, you're going to die and your body is going to be reclaimed by the earth And here we have an explanation of the beginning of suffering. It came upon mankind as a consequence of sin and rebellion against God. We ourselves are to blame for suffering. Because it's not just Adam and Eve who rebelled against the Lord. The Bible says that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we don't get to just point fingers at them and talk about how they messed up. No, the reality is we all participate in this great rebellion against the Lord. And the suffering and the pain and the death that comes along with that is ours to bear. But let me just say this. I think this is very important. 
I, I've neglected something very, very crucial here in my, in my description. It is accurate to say that, that, that suffering entered the world because of sin, but that doesn't give us the whole picture. You see, what happened to the all-powerful creator, the one whose words can call into being things which do not yet exist? Is sin and suffering a kind of intruder that, that, that broke into this world, somehow was able to spoil God's very good creation and, 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 you know, behind God's back? Maybe he didn't see it coming. Maybe he couldn't anticipate this. There are certainly some who would say that. That sin has crept into the world and God is doing the best he can. To find a remedy for it. But if our God is the God who can speak and call things into existence which do not yet exist, how could this sin happen? How could sin and suffering come into a world that he made? I want you to look a little bit more carefully with me at these chapters that we've already surveyed. And we're going to see an important detail that I have not emphasized. I don't want to say I've overlooked it, because I, I, we did read it, but I just didn't emphasize it. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 17, when God placed the man in the garden, he told him about the prohibition of eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But notice what he says. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. Now, let's think about this for a second. This is a God who creates life. And how does he create life? By speaking it. Right? He declares and he, and he says, let the earth bring forth vegetation. Let the, the seas bring forth abundance of living creatures all throughout the depths of the ocean. Let the skies bring forth abundance of birds and flying things. Let the, the land bring forth land animals and, and, and you know, all of these variety of things. He speaks and these things happen. And he tells man that when you, if you rebel against me, you will die. To understand something, God is not speaking here like a scientist. Okay, a scientist describes a law of nature. Adam, 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 listen to me. If you jump off a cliff, Adam, you're going to fall to the bottom. And Adam says, why? Because of gravity. Wait, that, that doesn't really explain anything. That doesn't really do anything. The scientist doesn't control it. He's just telling Adam what he's observed. Adam, every time somebody's jumped off this cliff, they've fallen and died. Don't do it. That's not what God is doing here. Right? God is not saying to Adam, you know, Adam, there's this kind of cause and effect thing that goes in. I don't really understand it, but that's just kind of how the world works, Adam. So if you do this, there's going to be a bad effect. I'm telling you, if you do this, you're going to die. Don't do it. That's not what God is saying. See, that's how we speak. That's how scientists speak. Scientists observe the world and say, well, you know what? It seems like every time this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And we begin to test it. We begin to see that, yeah, that actually works. And everywhere we try it, everywhere we test it, it works. And so we develop what we call a law of nature. And all that law is, is that all that, all that means when we say there's a law of nature, it means that we've tried it. And every time we've tried it, it's worked out this way. It's followed the pattern that we have observed. Does that mean we can explain it? No. Does that mean we understand it? No. It just means that it acts in a similar way every time we try it, and we can now make predictions based on that. We can say, well, okay, it's done this a thousand times in a row. I bet you the thousand and one time when you jump off that cliff, you're going to die. I'm telling you, that's how it works. Okay? But that's not what God is doing. Please understand this. God was warning Adam about what he himself would do if Adam chose to rebel. That's what God was saying to Adam. Adam, if you do this, here's what I am going to do. I will take your life. 
Notice in the, 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 the judgments that take place in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse uh, 16, when he speaks to the woman. And I already read this. He says to the woman, I, this is God speaking, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. God says, I am going to make this painful for you. I am going to make this difficult for you. I am going to make this laborious for you. I'm going to do that. In verse 17, when he speaks to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. The same voice that called the earth into existence, the same voice that blessed mankind in chapter 1, now curses the ground. Do you think that the ground listened and obeyed the voice of the Lord? You bet. My point is this. We need, to, we need this. We need to understand. Suffering began when God executed judgment on man for rebelling against him. This means... That the true origin of suffering is not other people. The true origin of suffering is not natural forces. The true origin of suffering is not evil spirits like Satan. The true origin of suffering is not even our sin and our disobedience against God. God is the originator of this. He is the one who brought death because of sin. This is an important point for us to understand. God has brought suffering and pain into the world that he made. And he did so as a righteous judgment for our sin and disobedience. Now, I realize in saying this that there are a whole host of questions and issues that come up when I say that God is the originator of this. And you're going to have to come back next week and the coming weeks because I'm not going to address those questions today. We don't have time for that. Okay. My hope is over the next couple of months to be able to address some of those questions from the Bible. Okay. But I want you to see that God created this. He was never, he never lost control of it. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, God never lost control of it. He was and is ruling, sovereign, Lord over all of it, from the beginning and through the whole thing. He never lost control. It wasn't as if God went, oh man, what are Adam and Eve doing? I don't know what to do. I didn't expect this. No. That's not the God who can call things into existence as, that don't exist yet, and they listen and respond to his voice. That God is all-powerful. That God is all-knowing. That God is all-wise. That God never loses control. He's always in control. So we have to come to grips with that, and hopefully over the next couple of weeks we can do that. What is worth noting today, and this is so important, is that if... God introduced suffering into the world. And if his voice commands the world, then he is the only one who can remove suffering from it. And this is exactly what the Bible tells us will happen. So look with me briefly at the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. I want to talk of this question, how will it end? I actually had a third point that I wanted to do, and then as I was writing the message, it just did not happen. Okay? So it was like, all right, well, that'll have to wait for next time. <laughs> but there's a whole lot more in the Bible about this that we will be talking about over the next few weeks. Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. John here sees a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. It's a, a recreation in which everything that has been corrupted by sin and everything that has been made to suffer as a consequence of sin will be transformed. And it will be a perfect and ideal world. Now, this new creation also, like the original creation, includes a special place 
that has been created for God's people. But it's not a garden in Eden, it's a city. And this city is called New Jerusalem. In verse 2, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And John says, I see this city coming down. It's New Jerusalem. This is the place for God's people to dwell. And so this perfect place... And this new Jerusalem is a spectacular city. In verse 3, we find that it's a place where God is personally present with mankind continually. Obviously, we recognize God is, we call him omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all the time. God is a spirit. He is not bound to a physical locality. And so this is not... John's not referring to that aspect of God's nature, but he is here speaking about God's personal presence with his people. And he says, this new Jerusalem, that's where it's going to happen. God himself, verse 3, is going to be there. <laughs> right? God will dwell with men, they will be himself, uh, with his people, and God will be with them and be their God. Right? Verse 4 we learn that when this happens, the Lord will, re will remove death and sorrow and all crying. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because these things, death, sorrow, crying, tears, these are a part of the former things which have passed away. They will have, they will have ceased to exist. In verses 6 and 7, we see that God gives the water of life freely to anyone who is thirsty. You know, what he said to Adam in, in the garden, the curse on the ground was so that, that even life and existence itself would be difficult. It would be hard to produce enough so that you could live and survive for you and your family and those who depend on you. But here, God gives abundant life freely. He treats us like sons and daughters. And it won't be difficult to live. God gives life freely. The water of life. Anybody who's thirsty can take it and drink it. All that you want. And you'll have life. This is a city that's going to be a place of glory and wonder. And if we, if we had time to go through all of the, the rest of the chapter, as he describes this beautiful city and the glory and the wonder of it, it's a place of peace, a place of safety. The, the gates will never be closed because there will never be fear of attack. It'll never, it'll, it'll, it will be a place of perfect uh, safety and protection. It's a place of light rather than darkness. In fact, there is no darkness there at all. It will never be night, but always be light. And there is no fear that will enter in. This city of New Jerusalem will be the center of world government and commerce. The nations will stream to it, will bring their riches into it, and it will be a great place, a massive city, where God's people, will, his servants, will reign with him forever and ever without end. And so we could say this, and I'll, 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 I said we would talk about not only how it began, but how it will end. And here's what we could say about how it will end. Suffering will end when God abolishes sin and sinners from his renewed creation. God is sovereign over this. He introduced suffering because it was as judgment for sin, but he will eradicate it when he abolishes sin and sinners from this new, his renewed creation. Now, one thing that's very clear from this passage. God says that the gates of the city of the New Jerusalem will never close. But here's what he also says there in chapter 21, verse 27. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You understand, excluded from this place are any who are sinful and corrupt. They're not, they will never enter into this place. And he does say that those who are there can drink of the water of life freely. And he says they're, 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 they're invited to drink of this water and live. But he also says that the cowardly 
The unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, for those who are unbelieving, those who are determined to continue in their rebellion against God, suffering will never end. It will only end for those who have believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. For all of the rest of humankind. And by the way, Jesus, remember he tells a little bit of a story and he says that there's two roads, right? He says there's that broad way, that broad road, and it's, it's wide and it's filled with people. And many people are going down that road. And he says that's the road that leads to destruction. And then he says, there's another road, though. It's a narrow road. It's a road that's, that's hard to find and hard to get onto. And he says, few find it. But that's the road that leads to life. I'm not sure that Jesus is giving us, you know, some sort of mathematical equation there. But it seems, seems from Jesus' teaching that we would expect that the majority of people who are living in this world will reject him and refuse to believe. They will choose their rebellion, their, their self-reliance, their independence. They will choose to eat the fruit in disobedience because they want to be wise and they want to be pleased. And they will refuse. And as a result, they will suffer for all of eternity. And that will be God's just judgment for their sin. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ today, then that is exactly where you are. John 3, Jesus said that those who have not believed are already condemned because you have not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. The reality of suffering and of your personal experience with it, serves today as kind of an alarm buzzer. You suffer today, and that's an alarm buzzer going off, warning you that your sins have separated you from God and that you have been condemned by those very sins. We need to understand this world is not spiraling out of control that the suffering and pain in this world is very much under the sovereign providence of our Creator. And I hope over the next several weeks to be able to offer some helpful perspectives on how we should then deal with pain and suffering that we experience. But today, I just want to call your attention to one thing. Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus endured suffering, even though he had never sinned. He endured suffering so he could bring you to God. He endured suffering so that you could have peace with God. So that you could have fellowship with God. So that you could experience life both now and forever by the Spirit of God. Our sufferings teach us that we're sinners. But the sufferings of Christ and his triumph over them in his resurrection teach us that we ought to have hope in God. If you trust in him then I can say with absolute certainty that one day you will experience life completely free from sin. You will experience life with no suffering. You will wake up with no pain. You will have no tears. You will have no sorrows and no griefs. This is our ultimate hope as Christians. 
but it is only hope for those who have cast themselves upon the mercy of God, for those who have claimed by faith the sacrifice of Christ. Have you trusted in him? Have your sins been forgiven? If not, then I plead with you to do so today. Trust in him today. Cry out to him and beg him for mercy before it's too late. Before you die and you go into an eternity separated from God and from his mercy. Suffering in this life is bad enough. Don't choose to suffer for eternity as well. But bow your heart to your creator. Confess your rebellion against him and be saved. He won't remove all your suffering and pain today. But he has promised, if you believe in him, someday he will. And you and I can have our confidence and hope set in him. Let's pray. Father, thankful for your word. Apart from your word, without the truth revealed in Scripture, we would be grasping in the dark, in pain, experiencing grief and sorrow, at a loss to understand what you're doing in the world. But when we read the Scriptures, we realize that you are the Lord who rules. You are our sovereign you have control over the things that you've made, that your voice is powerful. And what's more, we see that you have promised that there will be a day when all sin and sorrow and death and pain will be removed because you will remove it. Father, I pray that you would cause us to have hope in you today. Even in the midst of our suffering and our pain today, that we would... would be hopeful that we would have joy in our hearts even, as, even if we have pain and that we would be able to praise you through the pain because we know, we know that we have this hope. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us with it. I pray for anyone who's listening who's not trusted in Christ, anyone who is lost in their sin, Father, I pray that they would become desperate. <coughs> desperate for hope. Desperate for relief. Desperate for deliverance from their sin and the judgment that is upon them. And that they would cry out to you for mercy. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ and his death for us and his resurrection, that all who trust in him all who call on his name will be saved. I pray that you do your work now. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>